Uh, last Sunday, we were looking at 1 Peter chapter 1 and we highlighted four things uh, that it would be good for us to remember as Christian believers in a crisis like this one. One of the things we were saying was that choosing to praise God can really shape our perspective. And some of you this week have been asking, how do I do that? Um, how can I praise God and be thankful to God when things are hard? It's a great question. And uh, th- this week, I suppose, with that question, while well, thinking about that question in the back of my mind, I-, I happened one day this week to be reading Psalm 33 one morning in my own devotions. And uh, it really encouraged me. Uh, this psalm clarifies, I think, really helpfully what true worship is. And it reminds us of some of the great motivations that we have to worship God. So this afternoon, I'd love to share with you today how God has been encouraging me during this past week in this psalm. And so I've called this talk A Blueprint for Worship. A Blueprint for Worship. If you've got a Bible, it'd be great to grab that and uh, turn to Psalm 33 and follow on as we try and walk through this psalm uh, for a few moments. Now, some of you know that I do love McDonald's. And I'm sorry to say that on my way home on Monday afternoon, my car literally got sucked into a drive through to have one last quarter pounder before McDonald's closed on Monday evening. Um, first world problems, who knows how long it'll be before we can have another one. This Psalm 33, I think, is actually structured like a really nice, tasty sandwich. There's two beautiful thick slices of fresh bread with three layers of tasty, nourishing filling in the middle. The first three verses and the last three verses are the bread slices. And in them, I think we learn something from the psalmist about what true worship of God looks like. Um, so what I want to do, first of all, is look at these two bread slices. We'll look at the first part of the psalm first, and then we'll look at the end uh, secondly, and then we'll look at the filling in the middle. So let's look first at the bread slices one at a time. In verses 1 to 3, uh, here in Psalm 33, there's a call to joyful thankfulness in worship. These verses to me almost feel fizzy. It's as if the psalmist has shaken up the can before opening it and then the contents spray everywhere. The psalmist here is bubbling over with the excitement of thankfulness to God And so he says, sing joyfully, start up the band, get up on your feet, shout for joy. There's an exuberance and an enthusiasm in his call here to joyful thankfulness. The psalmist says here in verse 1 that it's fitting for the upright to praise God like a hand and a glove. The goodness of God and the joyful praise and worship of his people go together. Those who truly know God cannot help but gladly praise him. In verse 3, the psalmist says, sing to him a new song. 
So this is also something that is, it, it's not gone stale, if you like. There's something here that is vibrant and fresh. And I love the fact that at the end of verse three, the, the psalmist almost casually says here, play skillfully and shout for joy. I'm, I'm rubbish at music. But the thought here surely is one of concentrating hard and bringing our very best skill in worship to God. In other words, our worship is not meant to be an afterthought. It's not meant to be a kind of half-hearted going through the motions. So there's the first slice of bread in verses one to three in this psalm sandwich. Joyful thankfulness. It feels like a wake-up call. It feels like the psalmist is switching the alarm on to wake up God's people so that they'll celebrate the goodness and kindness of their God. At the end of the psalm, in verse 20, 21 and 22, there's another slice though. And this one, I think, brings in a different tone. Here, the thought is more of patient trust in the faithfulness of God. There's a wonderful sense of contented resting in God at the end of this psalm. The same note of gladness is still there in verse 21 when the psalmist says, in God our hearts rejoice. But this is less about joyful exuberance and more now about peaceful, calm trust in God. In verse 20 here, these are a people who are not in a stressful hurry. It says we wait in hope for the Lord. They're content to wait for God to work things out. And they respond to God here by saying, he, he is our help and our shield. I love that. He is our help. We're not on our own. All of our feeble efforts are infused with divine assistance. God knows who we are. God knows our worries, fears and anxieties. For me personally, as a husband and as a dad and as a pastor and as a manager, what a tremendous thing it is to be able to go to my own room and to kneel and to breathe out the words, oh God, help me, help me. It's, it's a great cry to, to lift our hearts to God, who is our help. But here it says that God is also our shield. I think the psalmist here is saying that there is no enemy in the universe that can ultimately penetrate this kind of protection and defense. It is as if God stands in front of his people and says, if you want to get to them, you'll have to knock me down first. Friends, you, you could not have a better helper or a better shield than God himself. The psalmist also speaks here 
of the unfailing love of God resting on his precious people. Don't miss that phrase. The unfailing love of God. Unbreakable, invincible, faithful, constant. Some of us have known the hurt of love that failed and let us down. Perhaps it makes us shrink into ourselves and be afraid of trusting anyone again. But here is a divine love that is rock-like and that will never disappoint or fail. So here in this psalm, we have this tasty little sandwich, two slices of bread that provide for us a kind of blueprint of what true worship of God looks like. I love how the psalmist paints this wonderful blend of joyful thankfulness to God and a calm, patient trust in waiting for God. These two things are what comprise our worship and praise and confidence in God. The meat in the middle of this sandwich, or the salad if you want the veggie option, are, are essentially the reasons that the psalmist gives for this kind of worship being possible. It's that little word for at the start of verse four here. The psalmist is saying the reason you can worship God in these ways is because and then the meat of the psalm in the middle is him articulating I, th I think at least three reasons three motivations for us to worship God in this way so first of all in verses four to five I think the psalmist draws our attention here firstly to the reliability of God's trustworthy character the reason we can worship God is because he's true to his word. I think the psalmist's words here speak for themselves. The reason that we can sing joyfully to God is because the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. There's so much noise sometimes, but here is, here is an anchor for your hearts in a stormy time. God's words are not chaotic. They're not erratic. They're not devious. God is not confused or two-faced, or prejudiced in some way. God is not a liar who has an ulterior motive. I think in life, we, we all know, don't we, that the reason you can trust what someone says is when you know their character. And the character of God is flawless. And because his character's flawless, that means that you and I can trust what he says. 
God doesn't make promises and then forget them or carelessly break them. We can worship and praise God because he is utterly reliable and always true to his word. The second reason that we can worship God is because of the security of God's solid purposes. We can see this in verses 6 to 11. And next the psalmist describes here something of the power of the words of God. First of all, we see it in the fact that God is the great creator. The psalmist first contemplates the vast heavens. And incredibly, the psalmist says that God formed the starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. It's it's as if it was easy for God to breathe out his creative commands and things, glorious things, vast things, a universe of things come into being. In verse 7, there's this idea of God organising things. And I think the sense is here that when this God speaks, chaos turns into order. Boundaries are established. Things are stable and secure and life can blossom and flourish. And in verse 8, this powerful, calm, creative, order-bringing genius should cause all of us everywhere to fall on our knees and worship God with reverence and awe. I love the way in verse 9 the psalmist then hammers these themes home and rejoices in the fact that God brings, God both brings things into being by his word and he also powerfully sustains all things by his word. But there's another aspect to this in verses 10 and 11. God is not just the powerful creator. He's also the sovereign king. Here the emphasis now is on the fact that God has no rival and that no one can thwart his plans or purposes. The psalmist says that the nations can plot in their restless quests, but God ultimately is the one that foils their plans and the one who can thwart human arrogance I think we all begin to realise in times like this that we're not in control as much as we often like to think we are. It is the purposes of God, rather, that stand firm through all the comings and goings of generations. Things come in and out of fashion. Empires rise and fall. But the one truth that towers over all the complex ebb and flow of human history is this, God reigns. The third reason that the psalmist suggests here that we can worship God is the warmth of God's gracious 
embrace. The psalmist here now moves from the moral and the cosmic to the personal. In verse 12, the psalmist says, Happy is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. In verses 13 through 15, we learn that though this God is indeed high over all, he's especially concerned for his creatures. Uh, He's not distant or aloof. This is a God who carefully considers and weighs the behaviour of humanity. In the end, we're not alone or independent in a random world. These verses are teaching us that all of us are accountable to our maker. And the question the psalmist goes on to ask then here is, what is our confidence and trust in, in the light of that? What are we relying on? What do we pin our deepest hopes upon? In this ancient context, the psalmist pointedly says to these people in their era, a king is not saved by having a massive army. A warrior doesn't escape by his own brute strength. A stonking great horse, despite its massive strength, cannot save. All of these things are not bad in themselves, but if they became the ultimate things that these people in this time were pinning their hopes on, they would ultimately fail to deliver. But the psalmist says, the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. The word fear here does not mean slavish terror or being frightened. This is a word that means deep respect, profound admiration, reverence and awe. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. In verse 18, the psalmist tells us that the people of God are those who put their hope in the unfailing, unbreakable love of God. I wonder, although it can be deeply unsettling, maybe sometimes it it takes the collapse of the other things that we've trusted in to shake us and to cause us to think about the God whose love never breaks down. The point of all of this is to say that this God graciously embraces those who turn to him in faith. This psalm is a song that the people of God sung in the Old Testament. Some historians think that the choir master sang the first bread slice calling the people of God to joyful praise. And then maybe behind him, the whole choir sang the sandwich filling, reciting these three reasons that we've been looking at. And then at the end, all of the people, having heard all of that, responded 
by singing their praise in the last section, the last bread slice at the top of their lungs. This song is ancient, but it does point to a greater reality than even they knew. If they could joyfully thank God and patiently trust him then, we have even more reason to do so now because we can see God's reliable character and his cosmic solid purposes and his warm, gracious embrace even more clearly fulfilled in Jesus. When you read this psalm back through the lens of the rest of the Bible and what God has done for us in Jesus, it is a massive encouragement to joyfully thank God and patiently trust him. This is a God who reaches out to us in spite of our sins and our brokenness. And this is a God who invites us to turn to him in humble trust and repentance. This is the God who has given his son to us to be our saviour. Jesus lived the righteous life that we haven't. And on the cross, he died the death that we deserve and then powerfully rose again to be the victorious king for his beloved and precious people. We therefore have a king who has defeated our sin, our death and our hell. I was fascinated this week to hear Boris Johnson speak um, about this government being one that wants to wrap its arms around small businesses. As someone who's involved in business, I'm very grateful for that sentiment. But here in this psalm is a God who wraps his gracious arms around sinners like us. This psalm is also a call to those of you who perhaps don't yet know God in this kind of personal way. Wherever you've been and whatever you've done and whatever your anxieties are in this current moment, here is an invitation. More than that, a command, a call that as you turn to this loving God in faith, you can and will find the warmth of his fatherly embrace through Jesus, his son. Recently, a theologian wrote a book on a character from church history called John Calvin. John Calvin was a leader of the Reformation in Europe during the 16th century. And this theologian, she describes Calvin as a pastor who was caught between God and a world on fire. And what she means by that phrase is that Calvin served his people, the people he was pastoring, he served them in a world that was on fire because of plagues 
and wars, persecutions, mass migration, and, and at times violent civil unrest. Calvin was a pastor in turbulent times and he saw people left for dead in the bushes at the roadside. He saw others enduring hunger and thirst, humid heat and freezing cold. And Calvin claimed that his task as a pastor was somehow to hammer out a theology of the God who is for us for a people who looked and felt like they had been abandoned. Calvin longed to dig deeply into the lives of the people he pastored, a deep awareness of the fatherhood of God, granted to us through his son, the Lord Jesus, in a world that was twisted and marred by human sin. On one occasion, Calvin said that it is the love of God really known that tranquilizes the heart. It is the love of God really known that tranquilizes the heart. We are not the first pastors to preach to a world on fire. But this is our task too, to hammer out a theology of the God who is for you, even when you're deeply anxious. So today, I, I hope you enjoy this tasty sandwich. In the midst of uncertainty and fear, you can worship God by both joyfully thanking him and by patiently trusting him. And the reason you can do it is because of the reliability of God's trustworthy character, the security of God's solid purposes in this world, and the warmth of his gracious embrace. All of these things are expressed by God to us through his son, the Lord Jesus. Look with me again as we close at verse 22 at the end of this psalm. May your unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Amen.